everyone. Welcome to This Lesbian Ship is Intense. I'm Katie. And I'm V. And we are back once again to talk about our new favorite show, First Kill. And we are continually floored by everyone that listens to us and supports us. I just don't know if I've fully been able to wrap my head around it yet. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you have. I haven't. Um, oh, I was literally just thinking this like a second ago because like my phone keeps notifying me every time someone follows us. And I was just like, how are there more people to follow us? <laughs> like, I'm just like, when do we hit the limit? I know. Um, and we hosted our first live interaction with people last Friday and hosted a watch party on Twitter spaces for everyone that listens to the podcast and talks with us and just general fans of the show. And we were shitting bricks basically about <laughs> doing that. We were very nervous. Oh God. Yeah. I was like, do you mind if I tell them that you were like trying to focus on doing laundry so that you could stop looking at the clock and I was making myself a sake mojito. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how do I distract myself right now? I'm going to do all my fucking laundry, which was great because I didn't have to do it the rest of the weekend because <laughs> I did all of it. But it was honestly surprising in the best way at the conversations we were able to have and we were able to talk to new people and talk to people that have been listening to us from the beginning that we've never talked to oh that was so exciting I mean it was really exciting seeing all those people period I mean I at first I was terrified about how many people were going to be there and then I was just like well what if nobody comes and then (laughs) I just like felt just so excited because I was like oh look at all these faces that I don't know like new people some people who have like messaged us or like I start to notice their um usernames and then the comfort of seeing people who've been there with us like the entire time it was so great the the whole I don't know first 30 to 45 minutes in the space ended up being a platform for people to talk about how much the show means to them and I just was so emotional listening to everybody's stories and I'm getting emotional right now like going back to it that was like a very um overwhelming day for us we had gotten we had just dropped our episode that day and we had gotten so much feedback from people that are going through some really hard things. And although V and I are uniquely prepared to handle a lot of those things uh, compared to most uh, people, um, it's still, for me, like I always take those things very seriously, I guess, and want to make sure that that interaction is as authentic and meaningful as possible and so to have a platform that we share feel safe enough for people to be that vulnerable meant a lot to me I was nervous going into this I wasn't really sure how much people were going to talk and were going to share and what they were going to say and the fact that people just like jumped right in was amazing I love it like you said like feeling safe enough to share and not only safe enough with us but trusting that 
a space that we would create, you know, that the people who would come to a space that we offer would be people that they were able to be safe with. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. And I really just loved, I think there were a couple of people who got really emotional. And I remember one person in particular, like apologize. And I think the both of us were just like, no, like we are criers here. We are feelers, <laughs> like no apologies. Feel those feelings. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there was just a, a giant sentiment on how, important Calliope Burns is as representation on television and how rare that still is and how much that means to people and how much that resonates with people and the authenticity of Cal as a character. So not just that she exists, but she exists as a character that feels like a relatable character to to Black people specifically. was really powerful and important and for people all over the world that felt that way. I think for me, something that stood out a lot was the response to us calling out the racial biases that influence how we act and perceive things. And that was really important to me because it's making me think of a recent incident in which I had a big reaction to an event that happened that seemed to have racial undertones to it to me. Um, And I had what seemed a very justifiably upset response to it. And in the immediate, I felt very justified. But shortly thereafter, a white colleague supervisor's response to it made me start to question if I overreacted. And I think that is an experience that a lot of people of color have, and it's not a pleasant experience. And so hearing so many people in the space say, thank you. Thank you for noticing this and saying it. Because you as the person of color experiencing it can notice it, but the way you're in inval- the way you are invalidated by so many other people, especially white people, it just felt really good to hear people say, oh, my God, you noticed the thing that I noticed and you put words to it. And it feels really good to have other people validate my experience and my feelings. So I was just really glad. It makes me feel really emotional and it makes me feel very, like, sad <laughs> that people are thanking us for doing it because I don't want to be thanked for doing it. Not in that I don't appreciate hearing from you all and that you're all... I don't know how to say it like it's not that I don't love hearing that you feel respected and safe in our like community that we've created it's that I hate that you don't feel that everywhere I hate that this is a unique experience for you I think one of the other things that I really enjoyed about the spaces is how fun it was the balance of emotional and just kind of diving into like what what's going on here this doesn't make sense or like what do you think is really happening here like I just had a lot of fun theorizing about what things mean and where we could go yeah and people had so many great ideas and comparisons and theories about the show and like this is what a fandom is supposed to be and the show has really created that where you're diving deeper into the show and trying to pick apart little details and investigate the lore and figure out what that could mean for seasons two, three, four, five, like, you know, and it, this show does have unlimited potential. And that is what's so fun about it. 
V and I did not record it because we were scared about doing this for the first time. Um, we were like, we're not recording a space that three people show up to. Um, <laughs> I also was just like, I never, like, we don't talk live, you know, like. We released two podcasts in our whole history that were edited. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we like the way that we record now is we just chat for like hours and then I go back and I cut it down <laughs> to what makes, you know, what is most relevant. And so this idea of me just talking unfiltered <laughs> was scary to me. <laughs> right. Um, but it ended up being a great time. It ended up feeling a lot like it is when we podcast where we're just chatting about the show for a few hours. Uh, Cause it lasted two fucking hours too. It was unbelievable. And every person that showed up or every person that told us even that they wish they could be there that couldn't like just that engagement, it keeps us going. And to wrap it up, I think I was thinking about this. So, cause it's especially pertinent for this episode. So our first logo, if you will recall, had oh what God. in it? A peach. <laughs> a peach. Our very first logo had a peach in it. And this show is filled with uh, peach analogies. <laughs> this is so full circle, Katie. This is so full circle. I can't think of a time where we both fully enjoyed what we were talking about and to me, like, that is what this podcast is about. Like, having fun talking about lesbian relationships that people don't get to hear talked about in any sort of, like, detailed, nuanced way. But it's not, we're not here to be, like, a staunch, like, critic or anything like that. <laughs> if that's what you're looking for, like, you're not going to find that here. Because we're trying to have fun with this we want to have fun so yes we want to think critically about it but the purpose behind it is to have fun yeah I think that we've had a couple of people review and say that you know like we're a mix of analytical and just fangirling and like absolutely that is what I think because of who we are as people and our professions we are analytical and generally considerate <laughs> and um fangirls because Yes, we need more queer content. Exactly. So um, for those of you that have enjoyed it, thank you for being here. We cannot thank you enough for talking to us. We understand how scary it can be to reach out to someone, whether it's to share something that makes you happy or something that you're scared about. And I don't underestimate what that takes to talk to us at all. So please know that we put our whole hearts into this and whether we're talking to you or recording this podcast and I hope you can feel continued comfort in the space that we're creating so now that we've talked a little bit about uh, that I think it's time that we jump into the reason that you're here and that's to talk about first kill episode four it's titled first date written by Joy Blake and Itolome Ohikuare, and directed by Eric LaSalle. So we start with a narration from Juliet talking about thunderstorms in Savannah. And you know how a bad storm is coming when it thunders, which is very apt for the South this time of year, let me just say. And um, 
we have the Fairmont siblings running away because the Burns family has arrived to go after the legacy vampires. And I thought it was very interesting and probably on purpose that Juliet loses her cloak, like her costume, the over piece of her dress, whatever that would be called. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, instantly, like it gets ripped from her. Like, I felt like that was very poignant about her journey in this episode because she has to lay a lot bare in front of people. Mm. Yes. I think that that is a good read of it. I wonder how intentional it was or not. Regardless, it still reads well. And Cal is captured by Clayton Cook. And a lot is happening all at once. We have... Uh, just the general burns monster hunters attacking all of the different vampires the guys thrown in the fountain how big is this fucking property that there are no nosy ass neighbors that are like what's happened over at the fairmonts you know? <laughs> like, how big is this land well they had a girl in the cage in the backyard and no one had any clue so there's a, cl- a fair amount of privacy I guess and let's let's like talk generally about these fights for a second. Like, why are the vampires so bad at fighting? Because seriously, you've been alive for how fucking long? Like, you have you learned no skills? Are we supposed to believe that the vampires are so caught off guard because they haven't had to deal with monster hunters in so long, so they were just unprepared? But I'm like, you have super speed. You can't be killed. Like, they're just whipping your ass with these spears, even though they're not doing nothing. But they're still winning very easily. I thought that, too. I really didn't understand. Because I was like, you know, Juliet said, like, this is natural. So you should have some natural strength happening here. Um, I would expect you to have years of experience to have, I don't know, better skills and not even being able to land a fucking punch. I was just appalled at how much they suck. <laughs> like, I was like, you're vampires! You didn't even bite any of them until the very end. That's what I was thinking. I was like, I was like did they get anybody other than Oliver and Eleanor kebabbing? I'm sorry, I said kebabbing because Dominic said kebabbing in that live. <laughs> Sarah and Mike. I mean- not wrong (laughs) that's like it i want the vampires to now that they know there are monster hunters out there to step up their game in these fight scenes a little bit that's what i want to see happen uh yeah please because come on come on there should have been a little bit of biting there should have been a little bit of blood on the other people's side too yeah exactly but jack stabs sebastian and talia stabs Margot with a spear and as she stabbed Margot whispers Talia quite dramatically um there's a there's a little bit of extra tension in that I would say I was just like how can you call out her name and then kill her like she's someone you know I think it's also interesting that Talia didn't have any hesitation Mm -hmm. but I guess I could also see like with how protective she is of Cal, like once she had in her brain that Jules like corrupted Cal in any way, that she would be cutting off 
like any idea of humanness or like morality in the vampires just like it's i could see why she could have a rigid like perspective of them yeah and if like she might have other doubts in the back of her head like that's where her brain goes uh yes i can see how she's justified it I personally, I think I would just have difficulty with, without Margot doing something on her own that says to me that she's truly evil. Like, I couldn't be a hunter. Like, I just, like, how Talia could do it. Some of the vampires were fighting back, but most of them were just running away as they were being chased and just defended themselves as the monster hunters, like, attacked them. They weren't even, like, necessarily trying to go after them when they showed up, you know? Yeah, and in theory, you know, they know that this isn't going to hurt them. So they could have very well massacred the hunters. Absolutely. So it's very interesting, like, morality complex going on between the monster hunters and the vampires, I feel. What I don't understand is why, like, after she stabs Margot and they're kind of, like, watching and they see, like, the hand movement and they're like what you know they're just like shocked that they're not dying and i'm like you literally went into this not knowing if it would work why are you shocked that it didn't work yeah and i'm just like what is the deal with the light i understand the sound because they are vampires are more sensitive to the noise but what was the deal with the lights i was like is it like some hyper level uv that could actually hurt them no, because they're fine with, like, daylight. Is it just such a bright light because they're extra sensitive to all of the senses? Like, I don't know. Maybe if they went over their plan a little bit more, I would have been like, okay, well, I see why you tried that. But now I'm just like, what were you expecting? <laughs> like, I know. Seriously, yeah. I don't understand why they're shocked at all. I'm like, y'all were cocky. Y'all thought that shit was going to work. Your six spears going to take them all out? And then I just have to say, one of the best visuals of this fight scene was the guy, one of the vampires that fell into the fountain and had all the blood and then he pops back up. Like, that level of imagery and drama, like, I want way more of that in season two because that was pretty cool. Yeah, I really like the way that looked. Um, Not as visually stunning, but emotionally, I love the way Margo just, like, launches Jack off of Sebastian. (laughs) Like, I just loved that. I was like, yeah, girl. (laughs) Defend your man. So Theo and Apollo are fighting some vampires, and when they stake them or, you know, spear them, Theo says to Apollo, like, you were supposed to be lookout. And Apollo says, Mom always said, where my brother goes, I better follow. And I don't know if they did that intentionally. I don't know if it has implications of being a person of color, but it brought up for me the ways my mother always taught me to protect myself. And so this statement of my mom always said, where my brother goes, I better follow, just screams to me, safety in numbers, take care of each other, be there for each other. Um, And I just, it just really stood out to me. And I think it's really important for both of their journeys because I feel like that is kind of their driving force through a lot of their narrative and how their story ends at the end of the season. Um, so then from here, we just have this idea that Tess's parents are going to look for her by the lake because the monster hunters are abandoning ship. They've realized that their plan is not working. 
And then we have Cal trying to fight off Cook because he's found her and is trying to kidnap her. And she says, you're Guild. Why aren't you help? You should be helping us. And he says, you're one to talk. Basically, you sold your family out when you told that vampire to run, um, which is pretty interesting that he's been watching her when yeah. she was tied up and didn't fucking do anything. That's what I was thinking. I was like, so we're to gather that he was there and he heard this and saw this and did nothing. Okay. And she says, you'll pay for this. And he'll say, and he says, so will you. And we know who's right about that situation. <laughs> and then Sarah and Mike, while looking for Tess, run into Eleanor and Oliver. And Eleanor straight up goes into bad bitch mode here, which is like sneaking out so soon. <laughs> Oh, she's ready to have fun. I mean, Eleanor is Eleanor. I really liked Oliver, though. Like, I don't 100% know his motivations, but it was just very protective of him to be like, go, Jules. Like, like seriously, like, leave. Get out. Because he knows what's about to go down, and he knows his sister. He protect. Not only did he tell her to run, but he was like protecting her behind him. So was Eleanor. Honestly, like they were both protecting her, which was very cute. Like they do kind of realize her innocence a little bit, I think, which was sweet. This is the only scene in which the vampires actually fight back with the intent to seek like punishment on the monster hunters. That's not self defense. Do you think maybe it's because Juliet is there that makes Oliver and Eleanor want to attack back? Like, why is this the time that they actually do that where they kill the monster hunters? I think that it could be because Juliet was there and they wanted to keep her safe that it would happen. But I also kind of wonder now they're not just running from people that are coming but there are people that are, like, literally directly right there. So, like, okay, well, let me just go ahead and fight with you. Um, also, also, I wonder if it could be something that speaks more to Eleanor and supposedly Oliver's, you know, um, I don't even know what word to, to use, crazy. Um, more vamp. Bloodlust. Vampiristic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Like, these two are basically ones we are told are killers <laughs> they kind of have the same monster hunter like arrogance approaching this fight where both like egging on and embracing it and I think it's really interesting that they join up here yet they seem to have very opposing views throughout the whole show so I don't know I'm very interested I guess in this twin dynamic and what it actually means yeah, I've started thinking more about Oliver in this episode. I'm curious as to how much Eleanor maybe has exaggerated. Is Oliver this like crazy sociopath that like they seem to make him out to be? Or was that elaborated in some ways by Eleanor and he's not as bad that warranted his being sent away? I just I'm not 100% sure where Oliver is in this. I don't think it's just he becomes the monster she wanted him to be or framed him to be. Mm -hmm. Like, it feels like there's another element to it. Like, did she exaggerate his and underrepresent her own? And so that's where the bitterness comes from. Like, 
I don't know. There's a lot of interesting stuff, though, between the two of them that I really can't wait to learn more about in season two. And I think this is a very interesting representative representation of that. So then um, Jules hears Cal screaming and runs after her. And as she kind of fights off Cook and gets Cal out of the car, she pulls a knife on him and says, move and I'll feed you to my family, which is hilarious to me. Like, she's also not a vampire. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. people. <laughs> she's just like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to feed you to my family. <laughs> yeah, they won't have an issue with it. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Clayton Cook still gets the better of Jules because these vampires can't fight for shit, I guess. And Cal has to intervene and beats Clayton up with her hands tied. So it's very interesting like what Cal is capable of when Juliet's in danger here. Damn, the way that Cal got him and then like kicks him, I was like, she's about to beat his head in. Like he is going to die <laughs> at her foot. <laughs> And then she's like, is he dead? And Juliet goes, very. And I'm like, you can't tell that his heart's still beating your yeah, vampire. that's true. But Cal is very concerned with the fact that she might have just killed Clayton Cook and is, you know, contemplating what she did. And Juliet's like, well, you saved me. So thank you for that. Dude, how fucked up would it be if Cal's first kill was a guild member? <laughs> Not even a monster? <laughs> God, poor girl. She just, see, like, I feel like Cal doesn't get enough credit in these first few episodes, and I think it really comes to play towards the end of this one, but she is going against her entire family by saving Juliet and fighting a guild member here and everything she's been taught in her entire life. Like, that's a lot to go through. Yeah, I really appreciated Juliet saying, um, because Calliope does. She's, like, kind of distraught. She's just like, what did I just do? And Juliet, I think, just simplifies it. Oh, my God. I just had a fucking drug flashback. Um, <laughs> where Kumi is just like, space is so huge. And then Fatu's like, but if you do this, just the thumbs width apart. You know, like, Calliope's having this big reaction to this thing. I mean, it is big. And then Juliet has simplified it to, you saved me. Like, you did what needed to be done to keep someone you care about safe. And I think that that's just such a beautiful way of reducing reducing someone's distress yeah and i think the these scenes although small are, are pretty important for calliope's transformation throughout the rest of the season because juliet is quickly becoming the only person that cal can confide in about this con inner conflict that she's having between what she's been taught and what she's feeling I don't think enough gets said about that. Like what it's like when you have to keep that inside and you can't share with anybody and how that kind of makes you like a little bit more tense and a little bit more serious and a little bit more like you have to protect yourself. Um, and so I think Cal really does have that energy through these first four episodes and it's not until this end of this episode where you see her make that kind of leap. Um, and then Tess finds her parents kebabbed and 
Another interesting thing to me was that Oliver stuck around and Eleanor is gone. Oh, yeah. I did wonder why Oliver stuck around. I was like, why the hell are you still there? I just thought that was interesting. Um, But Tess stabs Oliver after a little tussle and they bring him back to the Burns basement. And there they also discover that Cal is at home. Her phone is there. And while they're trying to figure out where she is, the guild gives the Burns family the impression that they're trying to help. But Tess reveals that the guild actually knows what what Cook did with Cal. Yeah, I was so thrown by this because she says wherever he took her, the guild knows. So I'm like, okay, so does that mean that Cook came into this to watch her but really the entire time was going to abduct her and Mike and Sarah and Tess all knew about it. Like, is that what that means? Yeah. Like that is what I'm trying to process here because I'm like, at what point does the Burns family say, fuck the guild? Like (laughs) Tess is basically telling you that the guild planned for cook to abduct your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's why I'm like, why aren't they freaking out more? Uh, maybe it's like the heat of the moment, but the guild is suspicious as fuck. Yes, they are. And also, like, Tess is, isn't helping your snitch game <laughs> either. That you knew the guild was going to kidnap Cal and didn't give a bitch any warning. Oh, God. <laughs> Fucking Tess. Damn it, Tess. You're not doing yourself any favors. <laughs> Damn it, Tess, we're fucking trying out here, but it's hard. (laughs) Um, And Oliver (laughs) chimes in at this very profound moment where Tess is crying about wanting to go home to her dead parents. And Oliver's just like, I hate to break up the family bonding, but this sulfur is chafing me. Oh, he's so, like just nonchalant i did feel really bad for tess though when she said she wanted to go home i was like you know like that's such a child emotion of just like i want to go home i want to go to my safe space i want to go home to mom and dad like oh i did i did i was sad for her for a minute um and then we jump over to the fairmont mansion where all of the legacies are licking their wounds and we find out that sebastian isn't healing oliver is kidnapped and Juliet's gone. So they have a lot that's on their plates. Um, but of course, Davina says that the halfling dying is the least of our worries right now. Every legacy there believes that they were sold out to hunters. And I'm just like, why? Because what? Sebastian is literally dying in front of them. So why would they purposely sell out themselves? Yeah. I like I really don't understand why they would think that they would sell them out. Like what would they gain in benefit? Like Davina is already the keeper of the Malkia. Like what would she gain from doing this? Her family is way worse off than everybody else. Yeah. So I thought that I thought that was really weird. Yeah, I don't get that either. And then we jump to Cal and Juliet at Ben's house. And Cal is like, calling your bestie is figuring out how to deal with this? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, even now, like, that is how I would approach a situation I didn't know how to deal with would be to call my bestie. So, like, 
I didn't know how to handle this situation at work. And I literally in my office called my best friend and was like, am I overreacting? Listen to this email. Is this appropriate? Like, I know it's not dealing with like a dead body, but still go to his bestie. You know, while I was folding laundry before our Twitter spaces, I called my bestie. Like, what am I, how am I supposed to handle this? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that is what you do, Cal. I, but her bestie snitched oh. on her. So, yeah, I was going to say she doesn't have a bestie, but oh, you know what she did? But she had a bestie who snitches. Yep. So no wonder Cal is so protective of herself. And Ben shows up. And of course, his first question is, why do you have my jacket? <laughs> Yeah. Important question, Ben. <laughs> but Juliet's like, remember how we promised we'd help each other if we ever really needed it? And Ben is like, yes, of course. What would you do? He's faced with the existential question. What would you do if your friend needed help bearing a body? Ben is confronted with that very, uh, I mean, literally, <laughs> like very literally. So he's told to go look in the trunk. And as he's looking, he's like, whoa, this is quite a mess as Cal and Juliet are freaking out. And he's like, you should probably get rid of the year old fast food. And I'm just like, Juliet, why do you have fast food in your trunk? You're a vampire. Like, what is going on? I was really confused. <laughs> but I was just like, wait, what vehicle did you take? Because it was a truck that that cook was taking her away in. So I was just like, okay, so this isn't cook's vehicle. So we start with cook's truck. And then we go to Juliet's car that they just leave at Ben's house. And then they take Ben's car to move the body. I'm just like, you guys are horrible at covering your evidence. Oh, my God. I know. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you're just taking that blood everywhere. Um, but th I, the reason I was confused is because I thought it was like Cook's vehicle. So then I thought it was Cook's fast food. And I was just like, <laughs> but then it wasn't. <laughs> I don't know. The fast food was interesting. It was throwing us for a loop. So then Bunny Wheeler shows up and is straight on like are you guys gal pals or gal pals <laughs> Cal and Juliet like my god it's clear that Ben tells her everything where she's just like your secret boyfriend you already told me that Jules swaps it with that new girl that she's like obsessed with um and I was just like oh this is me and my mom like I told my mom everything so I ended up loving that scene and then Clayton attacks Ben. So Julia intervenes and makes her first kill. And as she does, the music plays very dramatically. And it says, cold as the winter. Ooh, she's a killer. Ooh, she's a sinner. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that song playing then. Um, I was like, what do I think about Juliet's first kill? It's a big moment for her. I don't know if I was ready for it. And then I was really interested in trying to determine what Cal's and Ben's looks indicated. What do you think about the way that they were looking at her as she fed? I thought it was interesting that they both use a nickname for her as she's doing it. So Ben calls her Letty. Cal calls her Jules. So like they're using this like term of endearment. So I think that's really interesting. Like there's this human connection to her while she's like killing someone. 
And Ben is quite shocked and is really freaking out about what he's seeing in front of him. Cal, on the other hand, I think is honestly confused by her feelings and what she's witnessing. Because although she's been taught to think that vampires are evil for killing, she watched Juliet kill someone to protect her and Ben. So that is exactly how monster hunters kill. So I think when she's like viewing it in that way, she's honestly a little bit like that feeling of protection and like being protected and someone caring for you comes out then in a way that she's not expecting but also it's still alarming to see someone kill someone you know like I think both of those things are happening yeah I I was trying to figure out what Cal's look would mean Ben looked really disgusted and like just like disturbed he was just like what the fuck and I was like Calliope doesn't look disgusted she doesn't look angry she doesn't have to she doesn't seem to exhibit any kind of negative emotions about it it looks like confusion and processing and jules like i'm sorry but when she has like all of the blood on her face and she's like relishing and the like hilarious and cute like at the same time like i don't know what is happening but i'm just like you go girl you got you got blood on your face Uh, I was just like, I just like, I don't know. I don't like the idea of like all that shit dripping off my face. So I was just like bothered. (laughs) Jules is a messy eater. (laughs) (laughs) It's her first meal, Katie. She's learning. (laughs) You're going to get blood all over that Valentino, Julia. (laughs) And then we go back to the mansion with Sebastian and Margot and Sebastian is really not looking good um and she has him feed from her to try to help him heal I think um and he says you saved me once and you gave me a life better than I ever dreamed of and she says you promised me at least a thousand years I made me really think about Sebastian getting turned where did that mentality come from from him where he was like yes as a human I want to become a vampire and feed off of people (laughs) like you know like it made me think a lot about that character and how interesting that character can be moving forward with kind of Juliet's love story being also tied to a human I don't recall if there's something that happens in a future episode that shines more light on Sebastian's turning or if my assumptions were completely based upon this interaction. But I know I have it in my head that Sebastian was ill and that Margot turned him to literally save his life from death. Saved could mean anything. It doesn't necessarily mean he was sick. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't know if there's something else that happens in a future episode that I can't remember right now. But I know I have it in my head that she saved him from death. Yeah. Ooh, let me back up, though, because this scene made me so emotional. So when Margot looks at his injury and she says so softly, oh, that little O destroyed me. It was that, like, 
you like what the fuck do you say you see this fucking injury you know that it's a big deal you don't want to admit it and so you just acknowledge it with this very soft sad oh and then you move on like that oh i love the way she did that oh <laughs> um and then the song that's playing where it says what's a home without you um and then another lyric says i give my life for you like oh i'm just like you know right like so emotional because <laughs> My wife and I have like, you know, like, what if like, you know, what's like this, our zombie plan? Like, what's our this plan? Like, all those types of things. Like we talk about these stupid ass shits. And it's just like, I have other people that I care about in my life. But if she's gone, I don't know. It would be really hard to fucking go on. <laughs> so I feel really sad for Margo <laughs> through all this. Like, I don't know if this is fucked up or not. But this is what <laughs> some of my friends and I used to talk about in high school. Would your parents, like, if they had to save one person, would they choose their spouse or their kids? And I feel like it's a really interesting dynamic between the Fairmonts and the Burns because I feel like the Fairmonts would choose each other over their children and the Burns would choose their children over each other. Yeah. Ooh, I agree with you. I do agree with you. And, um, damn, I would not want to make that decision. Eleanor comes in and this is I'm almost more interested in Eleanor's when she arrives in this dynamic than even Margo and Sebastian's dynamic because I think it adds such an interesting character element to Eleanor so Eleanor arrives and she's just like grandmother is suggesting that we burn down our home which is objectively hilarious I'm just like but also why what does that get you to burn the house down <laughs> We just live for the drama in Davina's house, okay? <laughs> Davina's all about the drama. And I just, this scene is what makes me really emotional where Sebastian has Eleanor promise to look out for her mother and Eleanor is like, no, we're not dealing, like, doing this whole dying thing. Like, um, you can't leave me here to handle all this by myself. And so she's still very much in character for Eleanor, but also very emotional about her father potentially leaving her and dying and that's where like a lot of these really grounded human elements come forth that are in stark contrast to her mass murdering that make her very interesting and dynamic to me yeah I really enjoyed this scene because you see the love that Eleanor has for her father you know and the humor that she utilizes where she's just like you're not leaving me in this shit show and I think it's just something that sometimes we do in difficult situations so I really like that this showed us the complexity of Eleanor when he tries to protect her from seeing him like this and send her after his mother her mother and she refuses to leave and because she knows that's actually what he needs in that moment I thought that showed such a level of emotional maturity from Eleanor and understanding and then we jump back over to the Burns house where Talia is talking to a guild member and she's like you gave us spears that didn't fucking work and my kid is missing what is going on yeah, she is like, where is my child? And the guild lady is like, I'll see to it that Cal gets home. And Talia is just like, your, your words mean nothing. Literally, like, we need more of this energy because we're still not addressing the fact that the guild 
plan to kidnap Cal. I feel like we're brushing this over. Like, this is a big deal. I know, which is why I feel like, did I understand that correctly? Like, why is no one having a bigger reaction? Yeah, like, why are we trusting these people that they'll bring Cal home when they were planning to get rid of her in the first place? Yeah. This goes back to my theory I said in the spaces that the guild has a lot of Scientology overlays <laughs> to it. I'm just saying. Oh, I forgot about your Scientology thing. We kind of get reemphasized on the fact that this is guild protocol. Tess can't stay with the burns. She has to leave because of guild protocol. This is the mission, losing people. And I'm just like, you're so detached from reality right now. <laughs> like... I would not be able to deal with something like that. I'm too emotional. I especially, like, couldn't handle where she says to Talia that the guild considers this a win. And I was like, how? How is this a win? What did you what gain did we or learn? Exactly. Two people and a child, we only learned that the silver tip spears didn't work, that we didn't know would work in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So how is this a win? Tell me how it's a win. <laughs> Explain this shit to me. And then we go to the basement where Oliver is tied up and Theo and Apollo are trying to find ways to kill him. And Oliver is basically like, you could throw me in the ocean, but I can hold my breath for a long time. Um, and Apollo wants to just use a chainsaw and cut him to pieces. In his response, Oliver says, have you ever seen a snake with its tail chopped off? It'll just grow back. Yeah, we do that. So he's giving them a clue that they're made from snakes here, right? Because when you say giving them a clue, it feels like if it's intentional. But, like, I wonder if he just said a thing and we are, as the audience learning, that they seem to not only have their powers from the snake but they themselves have qualities of a snake and i'm wondering how that is and then theo notices that oliver has a ring on and as they look closely they realize that he's tied to a witch and that's a symbol of a witch and there's a red string attached to the ring so that goes into the red string of fate lore. yeah it does yep I thought that looked so creepy and cool the way like it was like in his um, skin. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an interesting detail for me. It makes me very curious on the relationship between him and Carmen. Yeah, I think they said that he's bound uh, to a witch. Um, and it, yeah, I'm curious about, you know, was that voluntary? Was that, you know, how does that work? But I'm curious as to what the hunters think of witches, you know, because they hunt vampires, which seem pretty close to humans. Um, they hunt ghouls and all these other things. Um, would they hunt a witch? I'm curious. Then we jump back over to Ben's house as Ben is running away as Juliet tries to approach him. He's like, please stay away from me. And she's trying to reassure him that it's still me and he asked her a question that only Juliet would know the answer to and um she's able to say you know we were eight you were in your Bieber phase you were choking on beignets like um he she knows who he is still and he's like okay you might know who I am but I don't know who you are my best friend would have lied to me and this is just it's a very 
intriguing scene to me because it feels very much like a coming out scene in a way. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I definitely, especially a little bit later, it feels very much like a coming out scene. Juliet, I don't think she says it here, uh, but she does end up telling him at some point just like, I had to, you know, like I, it's imperative for safety. Like this little bit of dialogue where he's like, how are you keeping this from your family? Your mom is going to freak. And she's like, yeah, they already know since they're vampires too. And he's like, holy shit. Even Eleanor. (laughs) I just thought it was hilarious. Ben has this probably ideal idealized version of Eleanor in his head. So wrapping his head around that was probably difficult for him. So again, hilarious where Ben's just like, Oh my God. In 2016 with the kiss, was that just you trying to get like a little taste, you know? (laughs) And uh, perfection that Juliet was just like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Don't, don't you throw this on me, sir. You kissed me. (laughs) And also the fact that Cal is getting kind of jealous in the background when they're talking about this. (laughs) And she's, like, crossing her arms and stepping forward, like, hold on a second. You guys have kissed each other? And it's like, yeah, the whole point of this conversation is that they're both gay, Cal. No need no need to be jealous, my friend. I did enjoy watching Calliope in the background, just kind of, like, watching this best friend interaction and then, like, taking that information in. And this is the part that really made me think about it being, like, coming out was where she says, I don't want to drink everyone in sight. Because, like, how many times are people just I like... I don't like every girl I've ever seen. Yes. They're just like, oh, you're gay? Well, I hope you don't have a crush on me. Nah, bitch. Like, I don't. <laughs> like, you know, we... Oh, it's so annoying. Um, Yeah. So then when Ben gets upset that Calliope knew before him... Yeah, so he's just like, you know, like, you've lied to me all this time. You didn't tell me, but you spend, like, what, like, seven minutes making out with this girl in a pantry, and you end up telling her, and he's just, like, upset that, you know, that she that he wasn't, I guess, the first, one of the first to know, like, how come Calliope gets to have this information. What I didn't understand was when Calliope says, trust me, no one was more surprised than me. I don't know how she can say that. <laughs> I think she means, like, that she's okay with Juliet being a vampire, like, in that way. But before I get to that, I want to talk about that. So I loved that bit because, number one, to be fair, Ben, you weren't there for that pantry kiss, so you can't possibly (laughs) know how, how intense that was, okay? Like, but again, I think that also comes to, like, a how this plays so much into a coming out scene because people that have known you your whole life are so offended that they don't get to know this part of you but sometimes like you can only share that part of you with the person that you are into or helps you realize that attraction first you know so I felt like it really kind of rang true in so many different ways for that that I appreciated um about this scene and I loved the dynamic between Ben and Juliet like it really showed the history and intensity of their friendship while also having a sense of humor and a heart to it. Like I was saying earlier, like, and also Calliope wasn't just a stand alone character just in the background. It was important for her and her processing of who Juliet is as a person to be able to witness this 
and see kind of this history of Juliet that was a child that had all of these experiences with other mm. people as like a human yeah. girl just like her and has these hopes and dreams and figuring out her sexuality all of these things that I think Cal is processing in this moment that leads her to be able to t- to calm Ben down in that moment and that's something that she's doing to support and protect Juliet um so I think this is a very important leap for their relationship moving forward that Calliope is finally able to accept that there's more to Juliet than just being a monster so after this Ben declares that he's going to go get his Taylor Swift blanket his keys and some paper towels for Juliet's face so he is resolving himself to continue to help them in this moment but I have one critical flaw that happens in this moment that drives me crazy through the rest of the episode. Ben couldn't grab a pair of shoes for Juliet. <laughs> I didn't even know she was barefoot at this point. <laughs> she is barefoot for the whole rest of this episode. They have this girl fucking in the woods, traipsing across Savannah with no shoes on. And they have an insane height difference because of that for this whole episode. Because Calliope's got like two inches on her boots and Julie's got no shoes on. So their height (laughs) difference is even more drastic than usual. So then we go back to the Fairmont house where Davina is planning to go back to Paris to strategize in case anyone is trying to dethrone her. Um, and Davina clearly doesn't care that Sebastian is on his deathbed. And Eleanor is like, you're going to let my dad die because you're angry about some old grudge from my mom not marrying her arranged husband. And I did appreciate appreciate how Davina's like, I'm not angry. I'm just like irritated. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, well, this like scene, just, I was like, oh, this is like a really good depiction of Davina. Like, she is just so cold. Like, I mean, where she says to Eleanor, so just so matter of factly, where she's just like, well, darling, your father's is um half made. Like, you know, that that's what happens. And doesn't even think about how that could be addressed. She's just like, oh, well, half made. This is what happens. Uh, nothing to deal with. Who gives a shit? It's the end of the line for him. And then when um, Eleanor says, if my mother hadn't married Sebastian, like, I wouldn't be here. And then Davina says, no, you'd still be you. You know, the best half of your DNA comes from me. And it's like, no, it would be a completely other child, but you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care that it wasn't Eleanor. You would just care that half of your genetics got passed on and would create some other, you know, in your mind, great and amazing and probably better than Eleanor child. How heartless. It's very disconnected from Eleanor even in that moment. And I think that is what makes Eleanor shift into her power play mode, offering what Davina may need in exchange for her father's life and what she can offer. Um, Because Eleanor, in some ways, I think still respects that about Davina, even though it hurts. 
Um, and she says, just like you use your power to get what you want, I'm going to do the same. I'll marry into the Davenport family. So then we go to Cal and Juliet carrying Clayton Cook's body. And I was just like laughing at these two girls struggling to carry this giant man while, while Ben is apparently like a star athlete and is not helping at all carry this body. He was like, you've done the deed. The most I will help you is figure out where to bury this. I am not touching that body. He is. He's scouting the land, Katie. He's trying to figure out where to put that body. <laughs> Jules and Cal are carrying the body. And Ben knows where to hide this body because he is a true crime junkie. And he has thought this through. I think it's a little bit funny that Cal is like, like, why the fuck does he know all this shit? You just watch Juliet like drink a man. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious that the only people that are like trained to kill people in a sense here are Cal and Juliet. And the only person who knows how to get rid of a body is a true crime junkie Ben. I know. Again, did not prepare the children for what comes after the kill. And I just like how they're like, Cal is like, I cannot carry this body that far. I need to get this done and get home. Like, Oh, yeah. She's like, I got to go home. Like, my parents are going <laughs> to be pissed. They're going to ground me. <laughs> and back at the Fairmont mansion, Sebastian is looking like he's on death's door, essentially. And Margot is very upset um, and is trying to get him to eat. But he's feeling exhausted like he can't. Um, and as Davina walks in, Margot is very upset and yells at her to get out. Uh, again, I was emotional with the way that Margot was trying to hold on to Sebastian. It was just like, I'm not going to let you go. Like, please, you know, like drink for me. And Sebastian's like, I'm just, I'm tired. You know, like he's ready to be done. And she's like, you are not going to leave me. Like that just, oh, it was so hard for me. And then the way she snaps when Davina, where she's just like, nah, 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 nah. You don't want to help my man get the fuck out of here. You can see, like, leave find your own way out of my house get the fuck out of my life where she said to him like where you go i go like that just oh again so emotional like mm, their love i love it <laughs> i love their devotion it's clear that they're both confronted with the fact that sebastian is about to die and they are not willing to acknowledge it and let go of each other I did forget to mention this earlier, but like, so they can feed from each other? Like, no, it's because she turned him. Like, Theo had to feed from oh. Juliet. I think her blood helps him. Oh, okay. I was like, so why are we vampires then? <laughs> I like didn't get Yeah, okay. I think that's kind of setting up the thing with Juliet and Theo later. And then to cap off this really beautiful emotional moment. We have a snake diving into Sebastian's chest to save him. I was in shock, I think, watching this. Like, the first time, I'm like, hold on a second. I was not really sure what was happening. I'm like, this snake just went into this man's chest right now. Yeah. I was like, did was anyone prepared for that? Because I thought it was going to bite him, suck the venom out, heal. Like, I don't know. Just, like, heal. I don't know what the fuck it was going to do. But, like, <laughs> dive into his chest was not what I expected. <laughs> Me either. And from this point on, we never see the snake again. So, like, is the snake living inside him? I'm so fucking confused about this. Have they fused and become one? We go back to the park where Juliet, Cal, and Ben have buried Clayton Cook's body very quickly with barely a shovel in sight, but 
you know who am i to question their their skill set you're right ben went back for a fucking blanket keys and a paper towel but did he get a shovel I think I saw one shovel between all of them. So maybe, you know, Jules used her super speed to <laughs> dig that hole. <laughs> Noah and Philippa arrived because they saw Ben's car and they wanted to see if everything was okay. They somehow allow Noah and Philippa to invite themselves to hang out with them and have a whole last party over the dead body they just married. I feel like Cal is also slightly protective of Juliet here where she you know she's speaking for Juliet to come up with excuses she puts her arm around her at one point and like Juliet's the one that killed this person right she puts her arm around her in this scene it's it's a small moment but I thought it was very interesting the slight levels of like kind of protectiveness that were coming out of her towards Juliet in this moment. And I think it's pretty interesting to think about Juliet's kill being a really vulnerable moment for her. Then we go back to the Burns house and Talia kicks everybody out of the basement because the guild traced Cal to the Fairmont's house. And Oliver knew and didn't say anything. He reveals that Eleanor took Cal as a gift because she's always been extra. But he notices how committed Talia is to finding Cal and protecting her. And he says, you'd give your life for your daughter, wouldn't you? Wow, to be loved like that. I wish my parents loved me like that. Um, And he's constantly referring to Cal as her Cal. He says, your Cal. I was really irritated when Talia said, like, you knew where Cal was this entire time and you didn't say anything. And kind of the way earlier Tess had um, yelled about the fact that Oliver had killed her parents. And I'm just like, y'all are acting so indignant. Like, how dare they do these things when, like, do you see what you did to them? Like, I this is something that irritates me in the real world with people is that when people don't recognize other people's perspectives which is like yes you can be upset about it but also can you understand like why the fuck would I tell you of course I fucking killed them you were trying to kill me (laughs) like (laughs) so like that just really irritates me so much and then um where you know Oliver's talking about how he doesn't feel like his mother loves him in that same way. Talia says to Oliver, no parent wants to lose a child ever. And I was thinking, okay, so you are saying that even though Margot is a vampire, she would have feelings and love and care for her child and not want to lose him. What happened to your whole, they don't feel, they don't care, they don't love, that's why we can murder them? Do you not see the hypocrisy? <laughs> like, do you not see this? <laughs> He says, you know, I bet Cal is with Jules, the harmless one, poor lamb. So he's also kind of humanizing Juliet a little bit more, like she's harmless. But also, he has always had some sort of plan for Juliet, right? Like, that's why he came back. So it's interesting that he's giving up information on her to Talia. I I wonder what his motivations are with everything that he says and does. I do believe that what he was saying to Talia, he does feel, you know, that his mother doesn't love him um, as intensely as Talia loves Cal. But I don't know if his motivations around those statements were just like him talking because he's feeling those things or if they're carefully chosen statements to share 
for some attempt at manipulation. Like, I don't know what his motivations are. Yeah. And I just thought it was kind of hilarious to, to go further into the hypocrisy here when Ka when Talia calls Margot and is torturing Oliver and is like, I just want my daughter back. And Margot's like, who? <laughs> like, you tried to murder my husband. I've been a little bit busy. <laughs> like, I don't know where your daughter is. Yeah, exactly. That that's oh, just upsets me. I feel like that's just so fucked up, man. Like you call Margot, who's dealing with the fact that you stabbed her husband. I mean, I guess in Talia's defense, Talia probably thought that the husband was fine, just like Margot was. And then you try a screwdriver through her son's neck. Like, just think about if things were flipped and they were doing that to Calliope. Like, uh, I just, yeah. You know, but I think it's also, you know, who are we to underestimate the power of mother's love? Like, she will go to the ends of the earth for her children, no matter what the cause and what it takes to do that. I would agree, but I'm still irritated because she is going after the Fairmonts rather than the Guild. Who took your child out the house? K Clayton Cook of the Guild? Where was she last seen? Somewhere that Clayton Cook was? Like, you are blaming. And then when she says, you know, Oliver for refers to Juliet as um, poor lamb. And she said, well, your poor lamb tried to kill my daughter. Uh-uh, you were not in that pantry. That is not what was happening. They were trying to get it on, and it went a little too far. Okay? <laughs> like <laughs> It was a mutual It was a mutual kiss and a mutual attempted murder. Okay? <laughs> So yeah, so I, I think that's why I'm irritated with Talia is like, I, I love her as a fierce mother and caring about her child, but I think it's missed. I, and I get why it's misdirected and misguided and she's going towards them, but I also just can't help but be like, you're doing this the wrong way. I can't help it. <laughs> um, and then we go back to the park where they're having a giant party in Ashley's name. Um, but eventually Cal asks. Juliet to take a walk and Juliet gets the approval from Ben who's just staring at his closeted crush and his girlfriend and having a miserable time by himself over there so things are not looking up for Ben I thought it was very nice of him to let Juliet and Cal abandon him in that moment oh I didn't even notice Juliet get his approval that's nice of her to check in <laughs> not just go off with her crush she asks Cal if she wants to talk about it and Cal asks if Juliet does, and Juliet says yes. And I found that really refreshing because most of the times when we get these scenes, they're just like, no, I don't want to talk about it. And so I really like that they both wanted to talk about it and then did, in fact, talk about it. I thought that was really brave. Yeah, I thought it was very lesbian processing of them. You know? <laughs> I was like, I'd avoid that shit. I'd be like, mm -mm, we all saw what happened. We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> Um, and Cal wants to know how it felt for Juliet to make her first kill. And Juliet says it felt right and she feels different now. And she asks Cal how she feels seeing her do that. And Cal admits to feeling weird about it, but also feels like she knows her better now and knows what she will do for the people that she cares about. Oh my God. I love the way Calliope is just watching Juliet talk they're so attentive towards each other they're so attuned to each other I appreciated that Cal stated that she had an understanding of what Juliet would do for the people that she cares about and hopefully recognizes that she is one of those people that she is someone that Juliet cares about and would 
protect. Like, multiple times in that evening, she tried to protect her. This conversation is essential in their relationship moving forward to kind of have a true understanding of who the other person is. Like, there's no false pretenses about the other person anymore. Like, they're both being very honest and upfront with each other about their feelings here. Mm -hmm. And to kind of touch on this article that I think we're going to reference a lot when talking about the scene. It's um, from NBCnews.com and it's titled First Kill Creator Stars Sink Their Teeth into the Lesbian Vampire Love Story by Max Gow. So one of the things that Sarah Catherine and Amani talk about in this interview is how they worked really hard on the power dynamics in the relationship and their like more intimate scenes to make it feel very even. I also think it's written into the show before they actually have sex for the first time, which they really don't have any sort of things that they're keeping from each other that would allow them to have power over the other in their relationship. Like they lay it all out on the floor. And I think it's really important for Cal to have a full understanding that Julia is a vampire that kills people before they move forward in their relationship. And so I really like that they talked about that and they have Cal processing through what that means to her. I was thinking about the fact that they, you know, both share pretty equal screen time. They're both very clearly our mains. And then the way that you pointed out that every episode they take turns with the starting narration and the ending narration, you know, like there's just so much that they do within the context of every episode, like that are small little things, but show us that these two are equally important and therefore one isn't superior to the other or more dominant to the other. Here we approach this mystical peach tree uh, that just happens to be in this park that also appears to be the same peach tree that is in their dream that we're debating on if it's even a real peach tree present in this park or not. Yeah, I don't know if it's a shared hallucination <laughs> um, like of their desire. <laughs> So Cal is like, did you know this peach tree was here? And Juliet's like, no. And Cal's like, well, it was in my dream, your dream, our dream. We have shared dreams. What's going on with that? And then that kind of makes them address the fact that they have this lingering connection between each other that goes beyond their feelings for each other. Because Cal says, when you came back for me earlier, I told you to run. Like, why did you come back for me? And Cal said, and Juliet says, well, I heard you scream. And Calliope's like, but my mouth was taped and I couldn't make a sound. So how did you hear me scream? I was like, okay, y'all are that connected that she knew that you were internally screaming for, you know, your life out of fear. Cal is like, you've bit me and you're in my head. So... I'm unsure of what's me and what's you and what's our this bit in connection. And Juliet says, I betrayed my family to save you. And I did that because I know my feelings for you are real. If you don't feel the same, I think I'm the one that should be questioning you. And I think this is critical for Cal's actions next, 
because if there's one thing that Cal, I think, completely can resonate with, it's like your love for your family. And in a way, Cal did betray her family by telling Jules to run earlier, which Clayton says over and over in the beginning of this episode, right? So that's something that Cal is dealing with. And so to hear from Juliet, the person that she loves, tell her that she was willing to do the same. Like, I think that's really important for Cal to feel like they are on the same page emotionally. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate Calliope's internal struggle like I really like when she screamed like you're in my head Juliet you know like I don't know what's like me and I don't know what is you and I just think that Calliope is a very to herself person because of her circumstances she doesn't share with a lot of people she's introspective she's analytical she's all of these things and this is making her feel very out of control. You know, what are these emotions? What is this connection? And I think that's really scary. And so when they have this conversation, which relates to the whole, like you said, the the betrayal of family for each other, I just think that this just feels kind of like a breaking point where like everything she's trying to hold in reserve can no longer be held. And it's just, whew, and she goes in for that kiss. Yeah, and then we have the scene that everyone that listens to us wanted us to talk about in detail. So we will try to do our best to do this scene justice. I feel like this scene was executed in a way where both girls felt fully in control of their feelings for each other. Um, Even though, like, it's kind of like they are so, like, taken with their lust and feelings for each other that they're like literally having sex in the woods, like two feet away from people. I felt like each girl had a lot of individual power in that moment that felt very equal and earned about acting on their feelings. So I appreciated that. I think that I really liked this scene for its intimacy, its sexual nature I like that it was it felt raw and real to me and so like one of my biggest and I think this will talk a little bit about the article is one of my issues with I think some lesbian portrayals is that I feel like it is too soft and I mean you're familiar with this Katie like my criticism of a lot of things is it's too fucking sweet and soft and I hate it and I I mean I don't hate it that's an over exaggeration but it's not my preferred thing It doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. I'm just like, not every fucking moment in someone's life is like writing your like fucking poems about how amazing you are and thinking that you, I don't know, you have butterflies and daisies. You don't have to just like fuck in a field of daisies and rose petals. Yes. I don't need to like, exactly. I don't need it to be like, oh, we talked about our feelings and how this is going to be the culmination of our love and we're going to do this in a field of daisies with candles that are scented. I don't need that shit. Like, nah, bitch, you're hot. Like, there's a lot that's happening here, like, especially as teenagers. Like, I think that it is really realistic that they... I've had a lot lot happen and it culminates in this moment. And that doesn't bother me. If anything, I appreciate it. (laughs) But even though it's like public, 
I felt like it was framed like as a very intimate moment between the two of them. So I didn't really mind it personally. Like, I just feel like there's something honestly really special about this show in that it's leaning into the sexuality of teenage girls and the fact that they do have like sexual attraction that goes in a different realm than just like emotional feelings. Like they don't always have to be hand in hand. And I think the show does merge them together but like allows both elements to shine in a way that we don't get to see on TV. Like so many of the elements of this scene were shot for like the female perspective in a way that can be like very sexy and intimate, but also not like exploiting the actresses. Like, you know, I, I did appreciate that they're not like stripping down in the middle of the woods with like a hundred <laughs> yes. people right behind them, you know, that's why it just catches me off guard. I'm like, what about this is for like a straight viewer when they're like fully clothed? You know what I mean? Oh, Oh, yeah. Please let me share with you the things that I love about this that are sexy and not male gazy. <laughs> so I love how, you know, Cal goes in for that kiss, you know, and then Juliet pushes her forward up against the tree. They kiss a little bit and then they switch places, which I just think like speaks to that like. When you're not in a heterosexual relationship, you don't have these kind of assigned dominant, you know, submissive roles as to how you perceive sex should happen. And so two women are determining, you know, how they want that encounter to look like. And so them taking them switching as to who takes over this kind of like dominant role in there. I just really appreciated that one. Two, I love the way that they kiss because it's just so like desperate and needy to like put your lips on any piece of skin that you can touch because that's how much you want that person. Which if we're going to have sex in the middle of the woods, like that's what it needs to look like. Yes. Like it exactly. It's, it is just desperation. I mean, I was, I will tell you, like I was not prepared because I didn't know what the, I did not think that they would I didn't did. <laughs> were any of us prepared <laughs> when when Cal starts pulling the dress up I'm like okay yes like there's something so nice about that like it's telling you what's going to happen it's very sexy but it's not exploitive in any way yes yeah we're not seeing you know like we know that the dress is riding up and then um, when Juliet's hand is in within the waistband of um, Calliope's outfit, like, again, we're not seeing skin, but we know what's happening there, you know? Oh, <laughs> that is very, like, obvious. I was like, wow, we can see that? Like, you can show us that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, like, pretty overt. Like, that is for women <laughs> to watch and appreciate Yes, exactly. Again, how is that male gazy? What man is going to watch that and be like, oh, yeah, her hand is <laughs> like in a waistband. <laughs> so, um, you know, like Juliet's strap off of her <gasps> shoulder, like that is sexy, yes. but it's like not giving away too much. And so exactly. I appreciate that both of the like more overtly sexy scenes were shot for something that women would appreciate. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm just very confused by articles that call this relationship like 
overly sexual because if compared to a lot of teen shows, I would not even consider anything that they have done racy in any degree, really. I mean, talk about clothing. Like, you mentioned the strap for, like, Juliet's, you know. And all that does is, I mean, that is a thin-ass strap. So it just exposes her shoulder a little bit, like, more clearly. But we don't have the dress dropping down so we see more cleavage. Calliope's is pants and, like, long sleeve. Like, there's, there's not a lot of skin showing. Honestly, I almost admired them for dressing them like this for this scene because I was like, you don't have a lot of clothes to hide behind either to do this. Like, it's a lot different than shooting a sex scene in a bed where you have a lot of things that you can use to, like, imply. Like, they were just, like, out in the open and had to do this. So I kind of admired what they were able to do with, like, the staging of it. Um, But... I would like to see, like, I don't know what it is, but, like, women, like, why don't, like, lesbian relationships have sex in, like, a bed on television? Because <laughs> that's just too sexual, Katie. It's a bed. <laughs> I like the song. I like that I feel live playing for their first, like, moment of, like, really letting go and feeding into that passion. Um, this is the first time that Cal truly initiates anything in the relationship, which I think was also important going back to my power dynamics conversation for them to have sex for the first time that Cal is like leaning into and acknowledging her relationship. Which is amazing because like you know we discussed earlier is like this is where she sees Juliet completely and totally for who she is so this is a very active you know choosing um each other knowing each other and what I wanted to say was that all these fuckers who are like no chemistry you really want to watch this scene and tell me that they have no fucking chemistry Uh, no Amani puts her fingers in her mouth and Monty's fucking hand at Sarah or at Juliet's neck. <laughs> like, please tell me there's no chemistry. I was in shock. Okay, I was like, yeah, I didn't know that until the fucking lesbians like, fucking gift that. The lesbians, yes, <laughs> I, I did not see that on my own. I was like, holy shit. And then the fact that Sarah Catherine and Amani decided to tell us that they choreographed that, knowing what we all know and have seen with our own two eyes. Well, you know what? I appreciate their commitment to authenticity. (laughs) And the thing is, and the reason why I think it was cool that they wanted us to know that is like that they wanted us to know that they wanted to pay attention to detail and make it authentic to the like lesbian female experience and not catered for anybody else. And Mm -hmm. To me, I appreciate that an actor is committed to doing something for the people they're representing and not for some other purpose. Like, Juliet has not even brushed her teeth. The blood is fresh in her (laughs) mouth. And Cal just is going for it. You know, like, we are on an equal playing field at this point. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I I very much like that V.E. Schwab, like she said in the article, you know, was not trying to give us something that's like, you know, pure and daisies, like this is sexual and that's not bad. And the last thing I guess we need to touch on are these peaches falling to the ground. Uh, what do we think the peaches mean? Well, I like what we discussed last time, which is that they are representative of desire. And so for me, I'm just thinking they're having a good time. <laughs> this is all I'm thinking. Their connection here is somehow tied to the the bigger like legacy and lore about it because the peach tree is tied to like the snake biting Lilith. Like it goes all the way back, right? Wait, In the I have a question. In the Bible, isn't it an apple tree? It's an apple. It is. So it's like, is the lesbian the peach and the straight people get the apple? Like, is that what we're going for? Was it a was it a peach tree when he was with Lilith and then an apple when he was with Eve? I couldn't tell you. I don't know what Christian <laughs> like, yeah, no, I have no idea. I just like I don't really understand how the peach tree plays into the origins, but it seems to. But it's a relevant thing and like the fact that all the peaches are falling from this tree when they're not even ha- they're not having sex on the peach tree they're having sex next to the peach tree mm-hmm. where all the peaches are falling so it seems to be like a cosmic thing at why all the peaches are falling this is not a real tree like i don't know i'm just like this is a hallucination that's tree. what i'm saying <laughs> if it's a fake tree and the peaches are falling it's definitely a cosmic thing so is there's like the this like them their union uh-huh. like yeah, yeah, consummating, yeah. is consummating their union like some bigger part of the lore among about Julia and Cal like there's some significance to these peaches that I don't quite fully get. So you think that they're having sex is like part two of the prophecy kind of thing. <laughs> But overall, I thought that this scene served its purpose and um, was shot well. So then Sebastian shows up and asks Ben where Julia is. And he comes up with the wonderful excuse that they're at a scavenger hunt. And um, we see Julia and Cal kind of walking back up to the scene. This is my favorite line <laughs> where he's just like, um, oh, hey, guys, you're back from like the scavenger hunt. Run, guys, you won. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's my part. Ben is a true ally. He was trying to protect his girl in this moment. I was like, they want the scavenger hunt. Like, everyone's here but them. And they and they won? <laughs> um, and, you know, one could say that they did win the scavenger hunt. Um. They're like, oh, dad, we were just, and he's like coming back from your fake scavenger hunt. Yeah. Okay. I don't think so. I'm really sad that they don't get to enjoy their post-orgasmic bliss. Like, it's just like, oh, fuck, my dad's here. Like, you know, the high is just You know, and there's a little moment that I really appreciated. I really loved this. Like, Juliet was like covering herself with her jacket while she's holding it. Her dad clearly knows what they were off doing. So I think I just appreciated that little bit of vulnerability in Juliet. Um, and that she was like trying to protect herself a little bit from feeling exposed. And he makes 
Calliope and Juliet go with him and says, you know, before the sun comes up, which feels like a vampire reference too, which I appreciated. Yeah, I also didn't like his little, I mean, kind of threat where he was like, Calliope can get a ride from me or the Savannah Police Department. Like, neither one of those is a uh, pleasant choice for Calliope. Exactly. And it felt very purposeful. Like, again, this show is not hiding from the reality of the fear that police instill um, in a young Black girl, which I appreciate the accuracy Juliet and Cal get in the car with him and he tells the other kids to scram and sends a pic of Cal and Juliet to Margot for proof of life. Juliet says to Calliope, you're safe with me. She reassures Calliope that she can get in the car with her father because she will be safe because Juliet will be there. And I thought that was just really nice. And important after like where they are in their relationship, like they're kind of in a vulnerable spot and they're confronted with a bunch of fucking reality right after. They don't really get a moment to live in that. So in a random parking garage across town, we have Eleanor and Margot showing up to meet the Burns family. And Eleanor is very concerned that Oliver would rat out the family on how to kill a legacy. So the legacies do know how they could be killed. We just haven't found that out as an audience member. Yeah, I was really excited to learn that. And I was like, I was like, oh, so they know that there is in fact a way. And I'm like, when are they going to tell us? Because, I mean, that's got to happen. We think Juliet knows. I'm she go- hasn't been bitten by the Emerald Malkia yet. I don't think that, um, I don't think that she knows yet. <laughs> she doesn't know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then in the car with Sebastian, I just thought it was kind of cute that Cal and Juliet are sitting right next to each other behind her father with like no shame. You know what I mean? Like there's no like we're going to sit at opposite ends because my dad just caught us. They're like right next to each other. Nope. Nope. Oh, it's so cute. I loved them. I mean, granted, it was not a great situation, but I love them being together in the back seat. They're really cute here. Like, Cal is like, oh, my God, I'm going to be grounded for life. And Juliet's trying to, like, ease Calliope's anxieties. And it's like, well, we can see each other in our dreams. Joking. Only kind of because that's really probably going to be our reality after this. Yeah, I thought that was just, like, so cute. Like, not, this is not the time to make this joke. Like, Calliope's very scared. But also, like, I think it's, like a hope a want you know like I don't want to be severed from you and worst case scenario we still will have our dreams which is very sweet and kind of sad um that they didn't get to live in their like shared moment together very long <laughs> where they're like okay well that happened now we have our dreams to look forward Aww. to now I'm thinking about like a separate timeline in which they like they got to just sit by the campfire together kind of cuddling <laughs> that would have been so cute anyway someone give us someone give us the alternate story where cal and juliet got to have their little like post bliss together a little yeah. bit longer so cal notices in the car that sebastian missed the turn to her house and she tells juliet and juliet tries to talk to sebastian and Sebastian like flashes his eyes and is like, I know where we're going. And I'm just like, why didn't you just tell them you were going to meet up with Calliope's parents? <laughs> I know. Seriously, why not just share that? Like, 
yeah, no, I'm not taking you home because your mom is waiting for you in the garage. Uh, we our family just tried to kill each other, so we're meeting in a neutral location. We're we're swapping children. <laughs> I do love how attentive Calliope is, though, like how she is paying attention to where they're driving. You know, like Julia didn't even clock like where the fuck they were. Juliet's trying to live in that bliss a little bit before it gets ripped away from her, okay? Juliet's like, is this my dad? Whatever. <laughs> it kind of makes sense because her dad in a normal situation is a little bit more sensitive than he is in the scene. Because once she starts to realize that something's off with him, she starts to become concerned as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Especially when those uh, those green eyes flash. She's just like, what the fuck? This is not my father. And then a thunderstorm starts and um, the car runs into Carmen with her red string in the wind and Cal sneaks out of the car and Jules chases after Cal and then Sebastian chases after them. And someone commented on our um, Twitter and they were like, does Sebastian not have super speed? Like, well, do any of them really have super speed? They never use it (laughs) (laughs) to go to Carmen is she there intentionally to stop them from making it to their destination? Like, why was she there? Was Carmen there just by happenstance? Like, was she intentionally there to stop the car from getting there? I feel like they were very close to this parking garage when this all happened. If we're doing this whole red string of fate situation between Carmen and Oliver, is it purposeful that she gives calliope and jules like and and not carmen's intention but in the framing of the show is it purposeful that she also provides cal and juliet their escape plan just as she does oliver like is there something to that i don't know and then the thunderstorm starts and oliver does this whole she loves me she loves me not thing but then oliver catches the red string and jumps off the building I was just like, was he not tied up? Like, y'all just put him on the ground and we're just like, oh, he'll just stay there. Like, I don't, I don't know why he wasn't tied up. Margo's like, why are you doing all of this, Oliver? Like he, but he's like, why does anybody do anything for love and revenge? Mm -hmm. You know, love and revenge is also Cal and Juliet's theme going on. Um, And then we get to my favorite scene of this whole episode. We have Juliet catching up to Cal when they stop and pause and like slowly walk towards each other along like this beautiful staging of the Savannah street that is like pretty romanticized. The music that's playing is a song called Till You Say So by Stephanie Maybe. As they walk to each other, Cal says, I never should have listened to you. And Juliet says, I'm sorry. And Cal says, you say it a lot. And Juliet says, you don't say it ever. Which then makes Cal confess and say, I'm scared. Okay, your dad is freaking me out. Juliet offers up her hand like she is asking Cal to trust her. And Cal shakes her head, grabs her hand, and they run off together across Savannah skylines. I just really loved the scene for so many reasons, but in the most classic sense, this felt like such a teen drama, tropey, romantic moment where we get like the time to sit in the silence and like address feelings and 
have these characters like take a leap and and make that romantic jump with each other when it's really scary and I don't feel like we get moments like this very often in TV and so I really appreciated all of it I was like I'll start silly and then go serious which was so I was just laughing because Juliet has or Calliope has such long legs and Juliet's short so like when they're trying to run together like it was just kind of funny and again, she has no shoes. How do you expect Juliet and her little legs to keep up with Calliope yeah. when she has no shoes? Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's the silly part. But, like, but I also really loved the way it was shot. Like, it was so beautiful to me. And I know you're really upset about Juliet not having shoes, but I actually really loved it. I don't know what it is about her being shoeless. It just feels so free to me. So for me, I love the way it looked to see them running and for Juliet to be shoeless. I think there's some intentionalness about both of them being stripped down emotionally in different ways. And Juliet's is really represented physically. Like that shawl thing is stripped of her not wearing shoes. Like she does seem a lot more vulnerable. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. And I really, really did appreciate when Calliope says to her, like, you say sorry all the time. And then Juliet has this like little look and she's like, well, you don't say it ever. And I don't know. I like that sassiness of her coming out and seeing how she can like be snappy because we all know that we're waiting for Dark Jewels next um, season. So I enjoyed that. And not only are we seeing that she can be sassy or, you know, snippy, is that by doing so, it's, it says it does something for Calliope where she I don't know if it's like because it's jarring, but it allows her the opportunity to tune into what she's feeling and admit it to Juliet. And I really appreciate that because we see how closed off Cal has been with so many other people and in so many other settings. And then for her to provide this admission this vulnerability and to have Juliet receive that and be like yeah I hear that I see that I'm with you and she puts her hand out they do that nod and then they run off together so like I loved everything about this (laughs) we're getting to the point where this is a real relationship where we're actually going to talk about how we're feeling right and I think this is the first time where she's actually acknowledging out loud that not only this experience, but her feelings leading up to this moment are scary and allows them to come to like a mutual understanding of where they both are in this exact moment to then run off. So I think this like episode explored a lot between the vulnerability of each character and the relationships with each other that I really appreciated. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was great. It made me happy, especially this this the way it ends. The weight of the episode lies with them, and it's so nice to have it be like your story, and that's how the episode ends. Mm-hmm. And you know, representation matters because it's cool to see yourself that way, um, where you get the emotional beat of an episode, and your story is the most important one. You know. Yeah. So thank you all for going along another ride with us. I hope we did it justice. Thank you all for all of your comments. We love to hear from you. You can continue to talk to us about the show on Twitter at This Lesbian Shit, on Instagram at This Lesbian Ship. And please keep rating and reviewing us on 
iTunes and Spotify. We appreciate it so much. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye, guys. Bye. This Lesbian Ship is Intense is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.